0: Okay, that's really exciting. Yeah, How are you? Hey, it's great to have all the rest of you guys from all the other campuses join us. Uh, It's fantastic. I was at Aurora last week. What a cool place. You guys been to Aurora? We're here in Elgin right now, but you guys been to Aurora? It's fantastic, fantastic body of of believers down there. It's just one of my great joys is that I get to go and I travel to all these different campuses, see what the Lord's doing there. Um, Look, you'll need a Bible, Acts chapter 5. Chapter uh, Verse 12 to 16 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, while you're turning there, I have to thank you for something. Uh, the first time I was asked to preach a sermon at the, for- the church that I was formerly at was uh, about 15 or 16 years ago. I had come from New Zealand, and I had preached a sermon five weeks prior in New Zealand, prior to when I was asked to preach in Canada, um, in New Zealand, the, night, the name of that sermon was What Makes Jesus Puke? I, I still love the title, but it was based on a passage in, in um, the book of Revelation, chapter three. It's, it's one of the letters to the churches in Revelation, and uh, it, it, many of you will know the passage if you've been around the church at all. Uh, it says that, you know, Jesus would prefer you to be either hot nor cold, but if you're lukewarm he wants he'll spit you out of his mouth. I mean, that's a hard hard word, right? But the church in New Zealand had gotten used to me. I, I'm the kind of guy who's just like, Well, if the passage is there in the Bible, we might as well study it. So we did. Five weeks later, I found myself being asked to preach a sermon. I was the young adults pastor, and they asked me, "Would you preach a sermon on the weekend after Christmas?" Because, of course, that's when the young adults pastor preaches the sermon, because nobody else wants to do it. So I was like, "Why? Okay, well, why would I come up with anything new? I'm gonna just, you know, just do the thing I did a few weeks. It was basically what I've been doing here at North Harvest. Um, I'm kidding. So I, I, uh, I got up and I preached this sermon. Uh, What makes Jesus puke? And uh, honestly, it was like I took a grenade and I threw it in the middle of, of the congregation. They were so stunned by this sermon. They were so quiet all the time. I thought, oh my goodness, is everybody okay? And then, of course, I finished the sermon. And the week that followed, I had lots and lots of people writing me emails saying I've never, ever heard anybody ever talk about that passage or say anything like that ever before in church, ever. And I was like, oh, that's odd. Well, the church that I was at had a history and um, kind of what's called the seeker-sensitive movement, and so a lot of people in the church had never, ever heard any of the difficult teachings in the Bible, and so here I was come along and I did that. They eventually got completely drunk and made me the lead pastor, and then they got that all the time. And so um, after a while, they got, they got used to it. Um, I tell you all of that because in the first few weeks of me coming here to Harvest and the uh, first few months, I have been in a position to preach lots of sermons. I have been surprised at how I've been thrust into some passages, like at the end of Ephesians, and uh, that are actually really controversial, you know? Like, hey, what are gender roles in the family supposed to look like? And what about the doctrine of election? And hey, do you know the story about these two people who got killed by the Holy Spirit because they lied? Like stuff like that. And what I've found is everyone here, I keep expecting people to respond like I threw a grenade in the middle of it and everyone's responding by going, no, 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 this is great. Can you tell me a little more? And I've been just stunned and I've been like, wow, I like you guys a lot, (laughs) right? A lot. And so I'm praising God for uh, the history of the church that has, has built into you a love for God's word. And I think you and I are going to get along just fine, because I like to tell the truth when it comes to the scriptures, and it seems to me that you like to hear the truth when you hear the scriptures. And so, uh, in that vein, I want to show you a passage of scripture. This is not the one we're going to study here in the next minute. I told you Acts 5 is what we're going to look at. But before we get there, I want to show you a passage of scripture that I often show students in a class When I teach lots of uh, classes, I eventually get to this passage, and usually because it's like a grenade that you throw out in the middle of the class and just see how people respond. The passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll just show it to you really quickly. Uh, The background of it is that there is uh, a son, stepson, maybe son-in-law, we're not sure, but there's a son who is having sexual relations with his mother. Of some, ver- ver- some mixture of that, okay? And the church is celebrating it. Now, I might say, you're like, what? Yeah, Corinthians, right? They're celebrating it because they're like, hey, we're free in Christ can do whatever we want. Paul comes along and he's like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You should actually conduct what he calls church discipline on this person. So at the end of his, his teaching there, he, sa- he said, look, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but, but not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd have to go out of the world. In other words, the people outside the church are not the people I'm talking about when you t- he says don't have anything to do with them. If you had nothing to do with them, you'd have to actually pull yourself out of the world and go live in a cave somewhere. That's not what Christians do, he says. Instead, but now I'm I'm writing you not to associate with, with anyone, note this, who bears the name of brother, who claims to be a Christian. Don't associate with anyone who claims to be a Christian if he is guilty of sexual immorality, that doesn't mean that they just did it sexually, they're sexually immoral one time or whatever. This is like a tag that you would place over them. This is a character trait of them. It's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater or reviler, or drunkard or swindler. Look, not even to eat with such a one, that doesn't mean portillos. That, that, that means, look, don't, don't share communion with them. There should be a signal to them that they are not part of us. There's a reason for that. You want to signal it to them so that they'll repent and believe and recognize that, look, we're giving you a foretaste of what's going to happen in eternity. So before we get there, we want to show you that you're not actually part of the people of God, even though you claim to be part of the people of God. We're doing it so you'll repent, so you recognize the severity of what you're doing, the gravity of it. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? And the answer there is nothing. It's crazy that the church is known for judging outsiders, right? I mean, you do nothing. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? What's the answer? Now, you ask that to most people and they're like, no. He's saying yes. Is it not those inside the church who you're supposed to, supposed to judge? God judges those outside. You leave that to God, but purge the evil person from among you. So this passage, when I teach it, people are like, students are like, uh, that would never work. Like seriously, if you actually did this, if churches actually went through the process of careful church discipline so that those who claim the name of brother and have committed themselves to membership in the local church were held accountable for the lives that they led. And then you came along and you said to them, listen, you need to follow Christ because you've claimed it and we're here to try to help you persevere to the end. And the way we're going to do that is to show you the severity of your sin. If you did that, that relationship would blow up. The church as a whole would blow up and people outside the church would mock the church as being judgmental and horrible and this whole thing would ruin the mission of God, wouldn't it? And that, all those reasons are why most churches don't do this. They read a text like this and they're like, first of all, we're not gonna teach it. We're not gonna talk about that. And we're certainly not going to do it because ultimately it's going to ruin the mission. People will be will be turned off. You say, "Why are you talking about this?" We're in Acts. Well, I'm talking about it because the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which is what we studied last week. You say, "What story?" Are just those of you who weren't here can't remember because it was a week ago and you can't even remember what you ate last night. Okay, look, here's what happened: Ananias and Sapphira, the church everything's going great, and then all of a sudden, uh, these, th- they were, in fact, gangbusters, they were having uh, people in the church who were selling pieces of property, giving the money to the church so that it could be spread among those who had need. It's a guy named Barnabas who did it, and everyone when he did it was like, oh, you are so spiritual and awesome. And then this other couple, who was also rich in the church, saw what happened to Barnabas and how much attention he got for this act, and they said, we should do that too, but... Instead of giving all the money that we, that we sold the property for, we should just give a portion of it, but we'll tell them it's all. It's no big deal. It's a little lie. Keep some of the money back, but we'll still get the gain in our reputation for doing what Barnabas did. So they come to the church. They lay it down in front of Peter. And Peter somehow knows that they're lying. And he says to Ananias, who's standing there, their husband, and he says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? You didn't, need to, you didn't need to report that you gave it all, but because you came forward, you reported you gave it all, and you're lying to the Holy Spirit, he's got something to say to you, and this, the thing he says to you is, you're dead. And so, he's done. They, they drag him out. Three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, shows up, And Peter says, hey, do you remember that Ananias, he came in and he reported how much money you sold the property for? How much was that? And she's like, it's exactly what he said. And Peter's like, oh, man, you had a chance, but you didn't. you did." And she's down again, right? At the end of that whole passage, the language is that fear came upon the whole church and everyone who heard about it. This is the first case of church discipline in the New Testament. The the immoral brother and sister were not just purged in a metaphorical way, they literally were purged from the people. Now, when you and I hear that, If we're right in the way that we assume how people are going to respond to church discipline or how they're going to respond to hard teaching in the church, if we're right, we would expect the outcome of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira to be that the church struggles now. Right? That the mission will be hampered. Because that's the reason that we give ourselves to say, that's why we don't do those things. Everyone will hate us. Right? Wrong. Acts 5 verses 12 to 16, is a passage that kind of explains what happens to churches when they urge their people to be genuine. When they hold people to account. When they insist that the body of people who call themselves believers actually act like converted, gospel-soaked people. So the question that we we need to ask, and we're trying to answer here, is what are the beneficial results of church discipline and an insistence on the purity of the church? What are the beneficial results? I've got three of them because, of course I do, I'm a pastor. Number one, the uncommitted are unnerved. The uncommitted are unnerved. Let me explain to you what, what I mean by that. Here's verse 12 of Acts chapter 5. Now, many signs and wonders. So Ananias and Sapphira were just before that. Now, he says, now many signs and wonders were regularly, interesting word there, right, done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So signs and wonders, we're talking about healings. We're talking about, you know, uh, people being delivered from demon possession. This isn't something that just, hey, you know what happened in the church like six weeks ago? Wasn't that really cool and how that happened six weeks ago? You remember that? Remember that? This is something that's happening, no, no, like this week and on Tuesday and then on Friday. It's regularly happening. Not every time they get together, but so regular that it's en- enough for, for Luke to say, yeah, it was pretty much a regular occurrence. Signs and wonders were regularly done by the people, uh, among the people, by the hands of the apostles. And, and they, they meaning the people who are in the church, they were all together in Solomon's portico. Uh, here's a picture of Solomon's portico. This is actually a model of the temple that existed in, in those days because it's not there now. If you can go there, there's one wall to it. But this is the temple. This right here is Solomon's portico. It looks like this, though, it's got these big columns. This is where the church met. This is huge, by the way, just, you know, it's like three football fields long. So it's enormous. They're meeting under this massive place with columns, and they're gathering together. Solomon's portico, in fact, was the place that Peter gave his first sermon, and he got arrested. So this is a place that this church has been meeting for, for quite a while, and they were all together there. But listen, none of, of the rest, meaning the rest of the people, out in the, in the temple when people are passing by and doing their religious duties and stuff, none of those people who don't currently believe in Jesus, none of them dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. Why didn't they dare join them? Seriously, guys, think about this. Like if, we're, if somebody's out here in the hallway and they're, they're doing signs and wonders, you know, people are getting healed and stuff like that, wouldn't you be interested in joining them? I would. I'd go right away. We're the kind of people who look up at the sky when a bird's flying. Ooh, look at the bird, and everyone looks. Somebody who's you know being healed of cancer out there, we'd be like, what? And we'd go right to it. But here, no, that didn't happen. Why aren't they joining them? Well, probably a couple reasons. Like I said, the last time that Peter was in Solomon's portico or colonnade and he was preaching, he got arrested by the religious leaders. So I don't know. I don't want to be arrested, so I probably might think, eh, I don't know if I'll join that group because I might get arrested just like the guy who was arrested before. But more likely... Luke tells you why, because he just told you the story of Ananias and Sapphira and news of this story of these people who were part of this community and lied to the Holy Spirit and then died has spread throughout all the people, both among the church and all who heard it, and they were all afraid. In other words, if you're going to join this group of people, think the rest, you better mean it. you better mean it. That's the lesson that Ananias and Sapphira taught all who heard about it. That there is no half-hearted commitment to this Jesus. You're either in or you're out. You're not lukewarm because then he might puke. He might spit you out of his mouth. The story of Ananias and Sapphira led to the unnerving of the uncommitted. If you're going to join them, it would be best if you meant it. Now, I need to try to impress this upon you. This is not just an emphasis that Luke brings to us here. In his gospel, he he tells a story about Jesus that I want to show you. And the point is basically the same. If you want to follow Christ Jesus, you ought to mean it. And if you don't mean it, probably better not to follow. So here's the passage that I'm referring to. Luke 14. Now great crowds accompanied him. I just want you to notice that for a minute. That the great crowds. Listen, if, if we got a great crowd of people to accompany the healing ministry or whatever it is that we're doing, the signs and wonders. Jesus was doing the same stuff and the crowds were coming from all over the place just like they did in the early part of Acts with the apostles. They're in fact carrying on the ministry of Jesus. And the crowds are joining them. Now, if you're gonna counsel Jesus as his advisor and say, okay, listen, we're we're trying to start a church here, man. We got all the crowds who are coming. What should you tell them? Here's what I would probably say, Jesus, give them the good stuff. Like, seriously, talk about how you love them. Talk about how there's peace in your name. Talk, talk about how uh, that you, you came from on high and gave up all that you had in terms of uh, setting aside your, your rights to your deity. And you came and, and you laid down your life. You're going to lay down your life for these people. Talk about all that stuff. Talk about... Kindness and grace and love and you know what he talks about? <laughs> he turned and he said to them, "Look, if anyone comes to me and, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and cousins and sisters and friends and Joe and Karen, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." No no, what are you doing, Jesus? That's not what I told you to say. What do you mean? You don't tell them to hate their parents? Of course, listen, we need to understand that uh, in the ancient world, Jewish world in particular, they used used a lot of hyperbole, right? I've told you a thousand times. We use it too. Okay, I didn't tell you a thousand times. It's just all you once, but really loud. And that equals a thousand. (laughs) So when he said you're going to hate your father and mother, what he's basically saying is look, your father and your mother and your wife and children, brothers and sisters, In the hierarchy of importance and authority in your life, Jesus says, I sit at number one or not at all. Either you're all in with me or you're not. If you say, well, I want to follow you, Jesus, but I actually want to do what my parents tell me, I want to do what my wife tells me when it's in opposition to you, I, I just, I, you know, I want to follow you, but like 70%, Jesus is like, no, you cannot, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot. Whoever does not bear his own cross, that was not in those days a earrings or a necklace, right? Ooh, how pretty. Those are beautiful earrings. I love how they dangle and they have like an electric chair on the end. But that's essentially what they were, right? Like a, a cross is our the ancient world's electric chair. And that's what he's saying. Look, if you're not willing to give up your whole life for this and to follow wherever it is that I'm gonna lead you, through my providence, your life is gonna go in all sorts of weird directions. And if you're not willing to just sit in the back seat and trust me that I'm taking you places to grow you, to glorify my name, and ultimately give you eternal bliss. If you don't believe that, don't come. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Okay, so let me give you some pictures, he says, that might help you understand the kind of thing I'm talking about for which of you, desiring to build a tower... Doesn't first sit down and count the cost, right? It's going to be expensive to build the tower. Whether he has enough to complete it. I mean, you don't want to get like two stories up and be like, wow, we ran out. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and it's not able to finish, all who see it, they begin to mock him. (laughs) Loser. You didn't finish what you started saying. This man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or maybe you don't like the building imagery. Who likes buildings? What king going out to encounter another king in a war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Like, do we have what we need in order to win the fight? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace so therefore like these just pictures guys therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple again hyperbole right but you get the point i hope hyperbole is an exaggeration for the sake of the effect what's the effect Either come strong or don't come at all. Now, I, I, I want to pause here for, for a minute and I just want to spend a little bit of time applying this idea. Um, two things. Number one, it is appropriate to tell people who don't currently believe, but are considering following Christ, it is appropriate to tell those people to count the cost. When you do so, you actually follow in the footsteps of Jesus. I've read, I don't know how many, like, Introduction to Christianity books before in my life, like so many, they come out every year or so. Some are great, some are not so great. There are very few that have a chapter in them about this. One of the only ones I've ever read in my entire life that has a chapter regarding counting the cost, right? Usually the books are like, come to Jesus, he'll make you happy and give you less stress. Why would you turn away eternal life? It's all positive. It's like a great infomercial, right? But this one, by a guy named John Stott, Basic Christianity, it's an old book has a chapter on it called Counting the Cost. In that chapter, he says this, Jesus never concealed the fact that his religion included a demand as well as an offer. Indeed, the demand was as total as the offer was free. If he offered men his salvation, he also demanded their submission. He gave, he gave no encouragement, whatever, to the thoughtless application, applicants Excuse me for discipleship. He brought no pressure to bear on any inquirer, inquirer he, he sent irresponsible enthusiasts away. Empty. <laughs> in a book, guys, listen, in a book where he's, if he's aiming it at the people who don't yet believe, he's saying to them, look, there are lots of reasons that you should follow Jesus. Eternal life, he's the greatest thing in the universe. You can wish for nothing better than him. All of your idols fall short of him. He's glorious and magnificent. But if you don't want to if you don't want to go all the way before you start consider it. Is that how we talk about it? One of my favorite one of my favorite uh, Sketches, you know, comedy sketches anywhere was this old one where uh, you can go on Google. It's very funny. Uh, he, this this guy's doing an infomercial about, you know, uh, it was do your own dentistry, like dentistry in a box. And the guy's trying to sell this dentistry in a box. It's great, mate. And he's Australian. Of course, he's Australian trying to sell the dentistry in the box. <laughs> anyway, that's a joke about Australians. Um, and that, Dentistry in a box, mate. It's amazing. All you have to do is take the pliers and rip it out of your face. And then the, the, the guy's blood is flowing. And he, The guy's like, I love this. Sometimes it feels like that's what we're trying to say to, pe- to people. Don't pay no attention to all the difficulty that the Bible has to say about following Christ. Everyone who wants to believe and follow the Lord Jesus will end up being persecuted. Don't pay any attention to that. Okay. Blood. Dude, it's not not a product. We're not trying to sell Ronco stuff. You do realize that if we decided that we were going to tell people the truth about what it means to follow Christ, that yes, all of these glorious things and suffering, if we told them all of that, there's a couple things that would happen. Number one, we would reduce the number of what's called apostasies. People who fall away from the faith, because they get halfway through it and they realize, "Wait a minute, those people who told me to follow Jesus because it would reduce my stress, stress were lying to me, because it's stressful. When everybody else starts mocking you for believing what you believe about sexual ethics or about the uniqueness of Jesus, they look at your life and they think, "Oh my goodness, you're so horrible. It's stressful. And they told me it wouldn't be, and so because they lied, I'm out. You wonder what's happening to young adults all over the country, yes? They grew up in churches that never told them the truth about following Christ. And then when they realize the truth about following Christ, they're like, this isn't what I bought. I'm returning it. So if we told the truth at the front end, we'd reduce the number of apostasies, and second, we'd reduce the number of hypocrites, wouldn't we? Well, I want to be involved with Jesus, but I just want, like, this much. Not, Not this much, but just, you know, this much. Great, come along, you can be involved that much. And then they get involved in the church, and they live this much into Jesus. You know, it's a Sunday thing that they do, and they go out into the world, and they live like they always did before. But now they've got the name of Christian on them, and so everyone who sees them says, Christians are such hypocrites. All because we just didn't want to tell the truth. Jesus, Jesus Jesus, told the truth. And some didn't dare join them. Secondly, though, I said there's two applications. It's appropriate to tell people to count the cost, but secondly, it's appropriate to count the cost. It occurs to me that I'm talking to a whole bunch of people who might be at various stages in their Christian Faith. So if you'll permit me, I want to push in a little harder. Um, There are passages, it's not, you know, Luke Luke 14 is not the only place that Jesus talks about these demands. Here's Luke chapter 9. Jesus said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him, look at this, deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Every morning that you wake up, you need to recognize that today is not about you. Today is about what it is, what is it that God is going to place me in to further the kingdom of God. That is my life now. I have surrendered. I have been bought with a price. So, so now I am going to lay myself onto the altar as a living sacrifice. So that God will do with me whatever he wants to do with me. Um, Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And a friend when I was young whose brother made a picture of this and in it was a picture of uh, Two pathways. They they started on a main road. It was like a highway, and he drew this highway that was going up and over. And in the distance, it looked like the best way to go. Of course, who wants to? We all want to ride the highway, and it leads to destruction. But the other one, he he had drawn a little narrow path that went across chasms and had rickety bridges and went around, you know above massive cliffs and things. And at the end, it was a cross. It led to life. That's a great picture. It's a great picture. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and narrow is the way that leads to life. And few find it. You know why few find it? It's because they're unwilling willing to go that way. It's easier to go that other way. It's easier to show up at church and just play along with the culture of the church. It's easier to just go out in the community and play along with the culture of the community. you just kind of like a chameleon, adapt to wherever it is that you are. But it makes Jesus puke. It just makes him puke. There is joy in following Christ and difficulty. Perseverance is necessary. Salvation is a free gift that will cost you everything. Is it costing you everything? I'm pleading with you to hear me. Is it costing you everything? Eternal life is is what we're talking about here, guys. I don't don't want you to stand before God one day and never hear somebody tell you this. Jesus is number one, or he's not at all. So where is he not number one? The uncommitted or unnerved, uh, second... The onlookers are impressed. Don't worry, the second and third ones are shorter than the first one. People looking at the clock, what? This is going to be forever. The onlookers are impressed. Here's a weird thing that happens, okay? Go back to the text that we're working with here. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, and none of the rest dared join them. But... The people, these people, the ones who, who, who didn't dare join them, those people held them in high esteem. That's an interesting little word phrase, right? So, so I mean, what's happening here is you've got a bunch of people who are like, I'm not daring to join them, but they're amazing. Have you seen what those people are doing? Have you seen the way that God is working among them? They're amazing. That word uh, hold in high esteem is a word that's used throughout the Bible to talk about how we praise God for his character. Lord, I'm thankful for your faithfulness and how you've shown it by giving me such a wonderful wife. Lord, I'm I'm thankful for for, uh, your faithfulness in the way that you've you've demonstrated to me by never leaving me, right? So, So you have seen God's character exhibited in your life in a particular way. When I hold my wife in high esteem, I say, you should see how she cares for her children. It shows the level of love and empathy that she has. So I'm, I'm holding her in high esteem by pointing to her character. This is what these people are doing. They're holding the church in high esteem by pointing to their character. That's being displayed all over the place. Just think about what's going on here. All right, so Ananias and Sapphira, they, they are uh, disciplined by the Lord this unnerves the uncommitted, right? Great fear starts to spread among both the people in the church who are half-hearted and the others who don't dare join them. So what you've got left in this group is authentic, genuine Christians. Still sinners, but repenting sinners who really love God and really want to see their neighbors reached for the gospel. This group of people then go out in the highways and byways. They're not always meeting in Solomon's portico. They have jobs. They coach baseball, maybe. But they're out there living out the implications of this faith that they've held. And because they're authentic, and they don't dare join this community if they don't mean it, the Spirit of God is working effectively in their lives and reaching the third baseman and reaching the the administrator in their business. And the church... Grows. The people are held in, high They're held in high esteem. Everyone sees their character and says, these guys, these guys are amazing. Look, in other words, when the church is authentic, the church is effective. When the church is authentic, the church is effective. Why isn't the church effective in our communities these days? What is it? Hypocrisy. Why do Christians get labeled with such horrible things? When I read about them online and I see them picket things, it's just disgusting the language they use. And on Twitter, they're horrible, mean people. Hypocrisy! When the church is authentic, the church is effective. There's a great story. J.D. Greer is the pastor of Summit Church. His church has uh, had a real interest in serving their their community in North Carolina, in the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina. And he tells this great story about... The results of of them being involved in the community, here's how it went. He says, in 2010, I was invited to speak at our city's annual Martin Luther King Jr. rally. It's a significant event in our city. It's televised and all the city and county government officials attend. They asked me simply to explain why we thought it was important to love our community. Just before the program started, I stood backstage as nervous as can be. The county manager, sensing my anxiety, put his hand on my shoulder and said, J.D., do you know why you've been asked to speak today? I said, no. Uh, And if you could tell me, I'd really appreciate it because I'm super nervous. He said, everywhere in our city, we find a need. We also find people from Summit Church meeting that need. We couldn't think of anyone better who embodies the spirit of brotherly love in our city than you all at, at, at Summit Church. He wrote that. It's probably y'all at Summit Church, right? We're talking in North Carolina. Y'all are amazing. So in front of our entire city government, I explained that our church's generosity was a response to the radical generosity of Christ toward us. Christ had done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, so how could we not extend that to those in need? When I finished, the school board, the mayor, the city council and all attending gave a standing ovation. Now, don't misunderstand. Uh, Gospel words and gospel deeds don't always yield applause, he writes. (laughs) Much of the time, in fact, they produce just the opposite. Jesus promised we'd have trouble in this world for following him. Still, there's a simple lesson here. Gospel-driven works substantiate the preached message. The work of the local church is to proclaim the gospel and make disciples, but the effective witness of Christians contains word and deed. Without word, there's no gospel. Without deed, we fail to confirm our testimony with our lives. As Francis Schaeffer, the great apologist, once said, the love on display in and through the church is Christ's final apologetic to a skeptical world. You want to convince people that Jesus is real? Be real. Let the gospel take its root in your life. Let it produce in you a love for God that bleeds out into your life so that you live in a different manner in a different way. And there's nobody who ends up claiming, that person's a stupid hypocrite. They claim this and they do that. And I promise you, at every turn, you will see the work of God flourish. In this city, right. So, first two, uh, the uncommitted were unnerved, and second, the onlookers are impressed. And here's the last one: God's mission moves forward in, in power. Look at verse fourteen. Um, more than ever. So, here's the result of it, <laughs> of all of this, like of the Ananias and Sapphira. What's the result? More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. I thought it would ruin the mission. Nah, it didn't. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. So Look, they were even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, look, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. They believed in those days that your shadow is an extension of yourself. So if you do something to someone's shadow, you do it to the person. So if you're a criminal and you want to hurt somebody, you jump on their shadow. When you were a kid, you did that all the time. Crushing your head they they believe that that would do actual harm harm to the person also on the opposite it would do great good to you so if someone holy you know anointed by god's shadow fell upon, upon you it meant that and it did <laughs> like it happened his shadow might fall on some of them and the people also gathered from towns around jerusalem they brought the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all they were all healed see when i read this passage i got to tell you something I immediately think, no way. Right? No way. Shadow. <laughs> Come on. break. <laughs> so yeah, I want to end this sermon with something really practical. It's a theological question. Um, the question is, does this happen today? Ought we expect this sort of thing to happen today? And here's the end of my sermon: four statements that begin to summarize the Bible on healing signs and wonders. One minute for each one. Ready? Four statements. Number one, uh, we need to admit when it comes to signs, wonders, and miracles that the the apostles were especially anointed by God to heal and perform them. That there is something unique going on in the lives of the apostles. Guys, I I, I know there are people all over the world who are like, my shadow heals people. Yeah, but not like Peter's. The the, the apostle Paul in Acts 21, people are taking handkerchiefs that he touched and aprons from his body, and they were taking them, and they were touching other people with him, and those people were being healed. Like that's a unique thing. The, the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And because it's a foundational work, there is a special kind of anointing that God placed upon these people. There's a foundation that needed to be built. And so these guys have a special uh, ability that uh, Peter can say to Ananias, you're dead. And they're dead. I can't do that. I've tried. I can do that. So the apostles were especially anointed by God to heal and perform signs and wonders, number one. Number two, healing signs and wonders, though, still occur. Like, don't be so blinded by your worldview. You say, what do you mean by my my worldview? Um, What I mean is that we live in the Western world where we believe that everything that is immaterial isn't actually a thing. Only material stuff is a thing. So... We end up saying, ah, stories about angels and stories about, you know, demons and story about, there's a scientific explanation. Trust the science. Have you ever thought about that line? Have faith in the science. Okay. Okay. So trust trust the science. But the problem is that science doesn't explain everything. It explains physical things. But science doesn't explain the non-physical things. You cannot put the Spirit of God in a beaker. And burn it and say, well, he's made up of these things and we can isolate them out and create a vaccine. You can't do that. You can't do that. There there is a non-physical world that exists and people in the West, we reject it. But if you ask anybody from anywhere else in the world, they read a passage like this and they're like, yeah, I don't understand. Well, like, what's the question? You guys have an issue with this? How in the world could you possibly have an issue with this? Because my cousin... Just talk to your African friend. They'll immediately say, Yeah, yeah, that happens a lot. I was in a, a class, uh, I told this to my theology classes a little while ago. Like I, I, was, I was in a class and I was hearing from a great philosopher. His name's J.P. Moreland. He was my doctor mentor. Amazing philosophical, smartest guy in the room, guys. Smartest guy in the room. And he was telling me a story about how a student came by the door of his classroom and stood there and stared. It was a former student. They stood and stared through the window. And JP was looking at him thinking, what in the world? Why are you staring at me all this time? And the guy just stood there for like five minutes staring intently like with his mouth open. He ended up leaving. The kid came back at the end of the class, walked briskly into the door, came up to JP and said, who are those guys with you? JP's like, what do you mean who's the guy's with me? I was standing in here alone in front of the class teaching the things. No, you weren't. He said, listen, there was a big dude right above you, and his, he was resting his chin on your head. And there's another dude next to you, and he was like fidgety, and he was moving back and forth looking at every one of the students. And there was another guy in front, of, in front of you, a little squat guy, and he was just staring like this at everybody. There were three guys with you. This guy's a philosophy major. Talking to the Philosopher. About the presence of angels. And you and I go, no, no, no. Really? Really? Okay, so Elisha, he's in the middle of this city. He's surrounded by this Syrian army. His buddy says to him, there's no way out of here. There's no way we're going to ever get out of here. And Elisha says, nah, nah, don't worry about it. See all those Syrians out there? They're totally outnumbered by us. And his friend's like, what do you mean by us? It's me and you. Do, Do you have like a bazooka or something I don't know about? And Elisha said, "Yeah, I got something better. And God peels back the heavens, and shows him the angels of the Lord in the heavenly realm. They're there. Well, I don't believe it. Fine, don't believe it. But they're there. Perhaps the reason you have such issues with healing signs and wonders is because your worldview is blocking your view of the world. Perhaps your worldview has been taught to you by some dude in a lab coat instead of by the Word of God. Apostles especially specially anointed, uh, the healing signs and wonders still occurred. You say, but why don't they happen all the time? Well, because God is often glorified in our suffering as well as in our healing. God is not just glorified when people get better legs and when their hearts are cleaned from cancer. They, 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 yes, God is glorified by that, but isn't he also glorified by you suffering well? I have a pastor friend whose wife died when she was in her 50s. The way he suffered through that it was hard. It was terrible. Tears, snot, all the stuff. But the way he suffered through it was re- remarkable. It was so different than the way all of these other people did. He had people from his life. You know, his investment advisor, his banker, his doctor, everyone asking him, what do you have that I don't have? Because you suffer differently than I do. I'll tell you what he has. The Spirit of God. Why didn't the Spirit heal his wife? I don't know. The Spirit would have been glorified by the healing of his wife, but the Spirit was also glorified by this man's suffering in a world where suffering makes no sense, where we're so averse to it. When you and I suffer well for the glory of God and have a vision that this is not the end, that there is a heaven and a new heaven and a new earth, and God will be with us and he will be our God and there will be no more tears, and we live in light of that? Man, I tell you what, there's not a skeptic around you that's got an answer for that. Apostles are specially anointed. The healing signs and wonders occurred. God is glorified in our suffering as well as our healing. And finally, can we just admit that the signs and wonders are meant to point to Jesus and not the other way around? Can we, can we just admit that? I've been to healing services before. You should do this sometime. Usually what happens is they get up and they say, hey, Jesus is amazing. Now everyone come forward for healing. You walk away thinking to yourself, well, the point of all this is the healing. Right? We even think sometimes like that. You know what the point of heaven is? That I'll be all better. No, 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 no. The point of heaven is that you get Jesus. The point of the healing is that it points you to Jesus. Can you imagine you're driving down the road, and you stop at the sign that says Chicago, 140 miles, and you've been driving for 20 hours, and you stop at the sign, and you start doing a dance. I I would get out of the car and say, it's not time to dance. That is just a pointer to the dance. And when you get home, we can dance like crazy. Why would you dance and be excited at the thing that's pointing to the excitement? Point is Jesus. The healing is just a foretaste of what life with him will be. So let all that the Lord is doing in your life point you to the one who is doing it and who will be the light forever and ever. There will be no need of a son. Is the mission dampened by discipline in the church? Instead of dampening the mission, God's judgment on Ananias and Sapphira set it ablaze. I want our church to be set ablaze. I want our church to be set ablaze. It will only happen, though, through the repentance and genuine lives of those who call themselves Christians. May it be. Let me pray, Father, for your goodness and provocative passages and pointed ideas. We're thankful, Lord. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for rebuke and for training in righteousness. Train us, rebuke us, correct us, teach us, Lord, that we might yield ourselves more and more to you. You are wonderfully worthy. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.